All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Curious Tales of the Talmud 2. If you like Curious Tales of the Talmud 1, you will love Curious Tales of the Talmud 2. This is a collection of the finest absurd stories in the Talmud this side of the Atlantic, perhaps, or something like that. You will not find a collection of stories like the ones we have collected in this series. The, um, here's the deal. I know everyone, there's a lot of options of things to do on an evening, a Thursday evening like this one. I'm telling you now, you've never been to a class like this. You have chosen the right class. I, I, I can't even think of a class that could even possibly be better than this class. That's, that's what I'm saying out, out of the gate. I know I'm setting the bar high, but as, hard as, I, as high as I set it, I can't even describe how great tonight's class is. And it's because the subject matter is incredible. I don't know that I've ever taught something as incredible as what I'm teaching tonight. So that's by way of introduction. Take it for what it's worth. Now, here's the deal. This course is all about exploring Talmudic stories that are very enigmatic, in other words, very puzzling, very mysterious, and decoding them, understanding their deeper significance. That's what we're going to do over the course of three sessions. You're going to love this class so, so much tonight that you're going to tell all your friends, and by next week, we're going to have new folks joining because of how great tonight's class is. That's my prediction. Here we go. So I want to begin with a story. The story takes place back in the old country. And unfortunately, as is, uh, as is a, a historical occurrence and reoccurrence, there was an anti-Semitic wind blowing through the, um, the country to the point that the, the, um, the prime minister, whatever it is, the leader of the country, said to the Jews, you have to convert out of, away from Judaism or else leave the country. And the Jews said, it's not fair, you know, we, we, we have our own beliefs, etc. Ultimately, the leader of the country says like this, here's the deal. You could stay on one condition, but this is what has to happen. You can debate, you can send a representative to debate the priest. If you guys win the debate, you can stay. If you lose the debate, you got to leave. So now the community is scrambling, who are they going to find? Who are they going to find to represent? No one wants to represent. The rabbi says, nope, it's too much responsibility. No one wants to do it, to represent the Jewish people in the debate. Finally, there's one guy that says, raises his hand and says, I'm going to do it. I'll debate. So they say, you'll debate? He says, sure, no problem. Okay, fine. This guy, his name is Yankel. They don't uh, have such high hopes, but look, no one else is going to do it, so Yankel does it. Gets to the debate. He meets the priest. He says to the priest, look, one condition for this debate. It's going to be a silent debate. Silent debate. No words. It's just going to be silent debate. He says, okay, fine. Um, good. So the debate begins. The priest begins the debate by holding up three fingers. The rabbi follows by holding up one finger. The priest looks very disgruntled. He had offered something, the, not the rabbi, the, uh, the Skyankel counters it. Okay. Um, the priest is a little uh, befuddled. He tries again. The priest waves the finger around his head. 
And the Yanko, the fellow, points to the ground. Oh, again, doesn't seem to, the priest seems to be very upset about this. The priest pulls out his communion wafer and wine. And Yankel, the Jewish representative, pulls out an apple. At this point, the priest is extremely upset, completely distraught, puts up his hands and says, that's it, everything I tried, this guy, this Jew beat me, I concede defeat in this debate. Well, each of the representatives, the priest goes back to his camp, Yankel goes back to his camp, and they have the post-debate, post-debate schmoozing. They, the, uh, the debriefing. They all gather around the priest and say, what happened? What happened? He says, this guy, this Jew, he may not be a rabbi, but he's really good. At every turn, he bested me in this debate. Right? I began by putting up three fingers to represent the Trinity. He holds up one finger. No, we all believe in one God. He beat me. Then I pointed to the heavens. I pointed around saying, God is in heaven. And he pointed down and said, no, God is here on earth. It's all about the mitzvot, the actions. So then I, I, um, I pulled out the wafer and, and the wine to, to, to symbolize that, that the one who we believe in died for our sins. And he pulls out, the Jew pulls out the apple, which represents the, uh, the original sin. Ah, he got me every time I couldn't, I couldn't move further. Meanwhile, back at the Jewish camp, they gather around Yankel and say, Yankel, what happened? He says, I have no idea. I have no idea what happened. He put up three fingers to say that you have to leave in three days. I said, no way. I gave him the finger. And then the guy says, you have to get out of here. I said, no, we're staying right here. And then he pulled out his lunch and I pulled out mine. All right, my friends, my friends, I know I muted everybody. I just want to make sure we had a clean background. But here's the deal. I'm, I'm feeling the uproarious laughter. Um, Look, tonight's class, tonight's class is all about an epic debate that took place 1900 years ago between one rabbi, not a silent debate, but a, a verbal debate between one rabbi and 60 of the wisest Greek philosophers, the 60 great elders and philosophers of Athens. This story takes place 1,900 years ago. It's recorded in the Talmud. And it represents, as I absolutely guarantee you, some of the most bizarre dialogue that you will ever encounter. It is dialogue from the Talmud Tracte Bechorot, 8B and 9A. It is dialogue that will absolutely make your head spin and make you shake your head and say, what gibberish, Baba Mises, what craziness is this? But as crazy as it sounds, you and I are going to learn tonight how wise and deep was this debate between the rabbi and the Greek scholars. It's a puzzling debate, but it's absolutely captivating. It's puzzling because it makes no sense when you first read it. And it's captivating because the more you get into it, the more you realize that there's big conversations happening in these words that are encoded. The premise of Curious Tales of the Talmud. Again, this is part two. We had part one just about three months ago. As I explained then, it's that the Talmud takes some of the biggest ideas and the biggest themes and encodes it in stories. We'll see tonight 
how big ideas were encoded in a debate that was done in the form of a riddle. As we go through the debate, we're going to, we're going to first of all, solve the mystery of what they were talking about, which itself is going to be very rewarding. But in addition to that, you and I are going to learn some incredible ideas about Judaism, God, the soul, the power of individuality, the idea of diversity and inclusion, ideas and themes that will absolutely enrich your life today. So let's begin. The historical context of the debate. When did this happen? Under what conditions did it happen? The debate occurs in the second century of the Common Era. So let me just say what that means. In the 100s. Right now, it's the, right, we are in the year 2000, 2021, right? 2021. This occurs in the 100s. The temple was destroyed. The second holy temple, which was the last one that stood. The second Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year 69 of the Common Era. So what that means is this story takes place several decades after the temple's destruction. So the, 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 the ruling power at that time is the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire is strong. They are bold. They are brash. They have consolidated many, many lands. They had millions of square miles under their domain, under the dominion, stretching from the Mediterranean, around the Mediterranean Sea, Europe, Africa, Asia. The Roman Empire is huge. There are two lands of note that will play into tonight's discussion. Two lands of note that the Romans took over. Number one is Greece. The Romans annexed Greece in the year 27 before the Common Era. So that's 27 years before year zero or one, whatever that count is. So it's 2000 and today, this year is 2021. So we're talking about 2048 years ago. So 2048 years ago, the Roman Empire annexes Okay. All right. So let's, let's jump back in. So, um, so one country of note that the Romans annex is Greece. And that is, that takes place in the year 27 before the common era. And the second, which again plays into tonight's discussion is the land of Judea, which becomes a Roman province province in the first century. Shortly before the temple's destruction, Judea becomes a province of Rome. Now, although Greece was taken by the Romans, um, officially under Rome, its culture and philosophy continued to flourish and continued to produce new works and original works. In fact, the Romans greatly admired Greek culture and philosophy. Even the nobles and the Caesars themselves embraced Greek philosophy. It's called, this is called, this idea is called Philhellenism. Philhellenism is the Roman adoption of Hellenistic, of Greek philosophy. Hellenism, Greek philosophy. 
The Roman poet Horace puts it like this. He says, Greece, although captured, took its wild conqueror captive. So although Greece was conquered by Rome, Greece itself conquered Rome, the minds, the hearts of Rome. The Romans loved Greek philosophy. So it was at that time and within this context and within this culture that the great debate that we're about to study took place. Now, I need to mention this. The Caesar, the emperor of Rome, that's fe the features in tonight's conversation, tonight's story, although, it's not, although he's not specified by name, is most likely the Emperor Hadrian. The Emperor Hadrian ruled from the year 117 to 138. We, do, we don't know for sure, but it's very likely that that was the Roman emperor, the Caesar, that is referred to and referenced in this conversation. And you should know, just parenthetically, this uh, Hadrian, the emperor Hadrian, began his rule with a very positive disposition toward the Jews, but later on turned violently against the Jews. Famously, he was the one that crushed the Bar Kokhba revolt, murdering millions of Jews, expelling the remainder of the Jewish people from Jerusalem. He plowed the Temple Mount. He forbade basic Jewish observance. He, he murdered some of the greatest Jewish sages of his time, including the great Rabbi Akiva and others as well. So it seems like this debate took place in the Emperor Hadrian's time when he was still on more friendly terms with the Jewish people before he turned violent and destructive. Okay, let me check in. Does all this make sense by way of introduction? Yes? All right, let's continue. So let's read the narrative. I'm going to pull it up. I'm going to share my screen. Give me a moment here. Uh, let me get set on my end with the screen share. Okay, hold on. Rabbi, does Judea have any connection to Canaan? Yeah, it's Israel. Yeah, Judea is Israel. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to share my screen with... Uh, Greek or Roman? Sorry? Was he Greek or Roman, Hadrian? Roman. Greek was Roman. No, no, no. He, he, was, he was Roman. Hadrian was, he was, a Ro he was a Roman Empire. He was a Roman, okay. Roman Emperor. Yeah. But again, the point is that they were all, inf not all, but many of them were influenced by Greek philosophy. That's something you need to know because uh, of the following text, which I'm about to share. All right, let's jump in right now. Um, I'm going to read this. Okay, text number, uh, well, it doesn't even have a, have a number. This is Rabbi Yeshua and the elders of Athens, number one. Here we go. Caesar, it doesn't mention his name. Caesar, little Caesar, pizza, pizza, joking, Caesar. Once asked Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya. So the rabbi, there's only one rabbi to know, and that's Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya. I'm going to refer to him henceforth as Rabbi Yeshua. So Caesar once asked Rabbi Yeshua, how long is a snake's gestation period? He, seven years, he replied. But the sages of the Athenian Academy made it snakes, and they gave birth after three years. Says the rabbi, those snakes had already been pregnant for four years. But the sages of Athens are wise, and surely their findings can be trusted. We, the Jewish sages, are wiser than they. If you are so wise, said Caesar, go and best them in debate and bring them to me. That's the dialogue, the opening dialogue. And already, we're in trouble. Already, the story falters. Already, it's not making a lot of sense. We're talking about snake gestation periods for some random reason. We don't even know why we're talking about this right now. We're talking about the gestation period of a snake. The rabbi says seven years. The emperor says, Caesar says, three years. 
The Athenian scholars told me this, and I, I'm a fan of Greek philosophy. That's why I gave you that intro. The Roman emperor here is a fan of Greek philosophy and philosophers. And he says, no, the elders of Athens told me. Three years, and you're telling me seven years. He says, the rabbi says, trust me, we're smarter than they are. He says, if so, beat them in a debate and then bring them back to me as your, um, you know, as the spoils of your debate victory. That sets the stage for the debate that is about to transpire. So in order to understand the next piece of the narrative, um, we need to know that Rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua travels to Athens. He goes to Athens. Um, why? Because there was um, a Georgia Bulldogs game. Joking. Wrong Athens. He goes to Athens, um, and the journey itself is fraught with difficulty. I'm opening up another text. Can you guys see that? This new text that just popped up. Did it pop up at you? All right. Baruch Hashem. Thank God. Bechorot 8b. I'm going to read this text. I'm going to read it. I'm not going to read it in the Aramaic. I'm going to do the English here. The emperor, uh, we already read this. Okay, Rabbi Yeshua said to him, How many are there? How many elders of Athens? How many philosophers do I need to defeat in this battle of wits? The emperor answered, 60 men. 60 elders of Athens. By the way, battle of wits reminds me of the famous joke. You know what a real battle of wits is? Horowitz, Berkowitz, Rabinowitz. All right. Next, so the emperor says, 60 men. Here we go. This story is wild. Buckle up. You should have buckled up already at the beginning of the class. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah said to him, he said to the emperor of Rome, construct a ship that has 60 rooms for me, and each room should have 60 mattresses in it. The emperor constructed it for him. Well, that's a pretty bold request and a pretty big building project. Rabbi Yeshua, we call this the princess uh, cruise line. Rabbi Yeshua then set out, on the ship for Athens. When he arrived at Athens, he entered a butcher shop and found a certain man, uh, the butcher, flaying an animal. Rabbi Shua said to him, is your head for sale? The butcher said to him, yes, it is. Rabbi Shua said to him, for how much is it being sold? The butcher said to him, for half a dinar. Rabbi Shua gave him the money. After Rabbi Shua paid the butcher, he said to him, did I say to you that I wanted the head of an animal? I didn't say animal. I was referring to your head. And you must now keep your word and give me your head. Rabbi Shua said to him, If you wish for me to let you be, go and show me the entrance to the school of the sages of Athens. You heard this right. There was a secret entrance that the elders, the philosophers of Athens had. Not everybody was allowed in their secret study and schmooze hall. So the, this Rabbi Yeshua goes to the butcher, because the butcher knows everything, right? The butcher was like the barber of nowadays. The butcher knows everything. So he goes to the butcher, and he, do, he bamboozles the butcher a bit, and, he ta- and he ultimately he's able to squeeze out of the butcher some information, or at least attempt. The butcher said to him, I'm afraid, as they kill anyone who shows its location to another, to an outsider. Rabbi Yeshua said to him, carry a bundle of reeds, and when you arrive there at the entrance of that secret academy, stand it up like one who was resting to mark the location. The butcher did this, and Rabbi Shua successfully found the entrance. All right, step one, check. He's found the secret location of the elders of Athens. Now, Rabbi Shua found guards stationed on the inside and guards stationed on the outside to ensure that no one could enter or exit. They also spread sand. This is important. The elders of Athens spread sand on the ground in the entranceway so that they could detect if anyone entered or left that was not one of them. If they saw footsteps that were entering, they would kill the outer guards for allowing people to enter. And if they saw footsteps that were exiting, they would kill the inner guards for allowing people to leave. Rabbi Yeshua reversed his sandal. 
uh, Yiddish cup, a Gemara cup. There you go. He's reversing his sandals. Can you guys figure out the ruse? I see some of you nodding to figure out the ruse. He reversed his sandal, so it's facing away from the entrance. Then he walked on the sand and snuck away, thereby creating the appearance of someone who had left the building. When the authorities saw the footsteps, they killed the inner guards. Rabbi Shur then returned, reversed his sandal, obviously, and made footsteps in the sand, indicating that someone had entered the building. They then killed all the guards, including the outer guards. Oh, including the outer guards. I literally wrote, wrote that, said that. And Rabbi Yeshua succeeded in entering the building. All right, step two. He found the location and now has infiltrated the secret academy of Athens. All right, we need some spy music playing because this is about to get thrilling. Now it gets a little bit more complicated or continues to get complicated. Rabbi Shua found the younger sages sitting in the upper, more prominent section and the elder sages were sitting in the lower section. He said to himself, if, sorry, he said to himself, I must first greet the younger sages as they are sitting in the upper section prior to the elder sages. But if I greet these younger sages first, those elder sages will kill me as they maintain we are better because we are older and they are children. So in other words, although the younger ones might be wiser and sharper, and that's where they're sitting above, but the elders will get offended. So if I greet the younger ones first, the elders are going to get upset and kill me. So what did he say? Rabbi Yeshua said, greetings to you. There you go. Uh, we call this in English, hey, bud, how's it going? There you go. You don't need to address anyone specifically. Hey, greetings. But he did not directly address either group. They said to him, what are you doing here? They probably sniffed out our rabbi. Rabbi Shua said to um, yeah. Okay, Rabbi Shua said to them, I am a sage of the Jews, and I desire to learn wisdom from you. They said to him, if so, we will ask you questions and see if you are worthy of this privilege. Rabbi Shua said to them, very well. Here we go. Listen to this. Debate is on. If you win, clearly there's a debate being had. If you win the debate, you may do to me anything you wish. And if I defeat you, then eat with me on my ship. Eat with me on my ship. What ship are we talking about? Remember the ship was 60 rooms and 60 matches in all the rooms? Yes? You with me? Okay. Here we go. Debate begins. Now, before I continue, I need to tell you this. There are 12 debate scenarios or debate items that go back and forth between the elders of Athens and the rabbi. Each time they try to outsmart him and outwit him. And each time he emerges victorious, as we'll see. 12 points of debate. We're not going to cover all 12. We would need a whole course for that. We're going to cover a few of them tonight. Let's begin with debate number one. The sages of Athens said to him, they said to the rabbi, in the case of a certain man who goes and asks to marry a woman and her family does not give her to him, why would he see fit to go to a family that is greater than the first? In other words, again, they're asking, if you get rejected by a lower family in marriage, would it make sense to go to a greater family? Of course not. Rabbi Yeshua took a peg in response. He took a peg and stuck it in the lower part of the wall, but it did not go in. He then stuck it into the upper portion of the wall where there was a hole and it went in. He said to them, so he demonstrated that sometimes if it doesn't go lower, it might go higher. He said to them, in this case too, where he goes to a more distinguished family than the first, uh, in this case too, where he goes to a more distinguished family than the first, perhaps he will find the girl destined for him. Okay, you with me on this? Yes, yes, sort of. Okay, so this is debate number one. I'm going to stop sharing for a second and just take a breath 
and understand how we got here. I'm going to recap quickly, just so we're all on the same page. Number one, the emperor of Rome stops the rabbi in the street and says, Hey, rabbi, how long does it take? How long is the gestation period of a snake? The rabbi says, seven years. He says, what are you talking about, rabbi? It's three years. That's what the Athenian sages told me, the elders told me. And he's, the rabbi says, nope, it's three and we're right. He says, in that case, debate them. The whole journey to get to, this, to the elders of Athens is dramatic. He gets there. He, he, they agree to a debate that at stake. Well, what are the, what are the, what's the payoff on either side? Um, if the elders of Athens win, they can do whatever they want to him. If he wins, then they have to come on a ship to eat some, to eat, to, to, to break bread, to say l'chaim, to eat something, to have a meal. Okay, that's what's going on. The first point of debate is, they ask him, if someone asks a girl from a, from a family that's here, whatever, whatever station, and they say, no, they reject him, you're not good enough, would he then ask someone greater? <clears throat> and so the rabbi takes a peg, doesn't go in below, puts it in above, it goes in, and the rabbi says, see, sometimes, sometimes you don't know. That's debate number one. Let's continue. I'm going to share my screen. Don't worry, we're going to address all this stuff. In case you're wondering what's going on, trust me, we're all in the same boat. Well, maybe the Athenian elders will be in a moment, but that's another story. Back to our text. Okay, this is going to be back to the other text that we have. This is um, another two debate points. Out of the 12, we're going to focus on three of them. One about the, the, the marriage and the peg and the wall, and the other one, and, the, and here are the other two. The elders of Athens asked, a chick that dies while still in its shell, in, inside the egg. From where does its spirit depart, they asked. From where the spirit originally came, from there it departs. That's what he answered. Further, they asked him, we have a broken millstone. Stitch it together. Rabbi Shur responded, twist together threads from the broken stone for me and I shall sew it. Okay, this is, this is the debate. This, this is the dialogue. If you're taking notes, if you were there taking notes, this is what was going back and forth. Twelve different instances. By the way, no less bizarre than these. Happen, we happen to choose three of them, but twelve bizarre back and forths. A chick that dies while still in its shell, from where does its spirit depart? A wise question. And the rabbi brilliantly answers, from where the spirit originally came. Are you kidding me? Stitch together a broken millstone. Stitch together a broken millstone. That sentence has never been uttered before, right? Okay, twist together threads from the stone and I shall sew it. I, I, okay, if you're anything like me in following these stories, in following these debates, you will probably assume that this is just ludicrous. It's just bizarre. It's nonsensical. It's gibberish. But let me explain what's going on here. We're dealing with the 60 greatest philosophers of Athens. 60 of the greatest Greek philosophers. We're dealing with Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya, who's one of the greatest scholars of his time. He was a Levite who had personally sung in the Holy Temple. He was an elder sage at that time renowned for his philosophical brilliance and his debating prowess. In fact, upon his death, the eulogy about him was, the last of the great debaters has passed. 
He was a brilliant scholar, philosopher, and a debater. He was also knowledgeable in science. The Talmud references a statement of his that seems to mention a star that appears only once in 70 years. Do you know perhaps a star that appears once every 70 years? Unmute yourself if you can tell me what it's called. It begins with the word Halley's and it ends with the word Comet. Halley's Comet. There you go. I just gave it away. My bad. Halley's Comet. It's, he seems to reference it. The, the Athenian elders, as I mentioned before, were no small potatoes either. What was going on, according to all the commentaries, is what's classically known as a riddle debate. Or a debate in the form of riddle. Which is not simply a philosophical debate. Any philosopher, any Google philosopher, philosopher, can have a philosophical debate, right? You can have a debate around the, uh, you know, the, 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 the ballpark. You can have a philosophical debate anywhere. But a riddle debate provides a threefold challenge. Number one, if you're on the other side, you have to know what they said in the riddle. In other words, it, when somebody poses to you the philosophical, you know, the, 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 uh, the first attack, so to speak, philosophically, in the form of a riddle, number one, you have to, you have to decode the riddle to know what they're talking about. Then you have to formulate an answer to the, to the deep concept that they're referencing, and then you have to encode it back in a riddle back to them. Are you with me on this? You have to decode the riddle, figure out a response philosophically, and then encode it back in riddle form and deliver it back to the one who delivered it to you. My friends, riddle debates are not for the faint of heart, which is why tonight we are cardiovascularly very healthy. Our hearts are not faint because we are going to do exactly that. We are going to decode four, maybe three, three or four riddle debates between Rabbi Yeshua and the emperor of Rome and the Athenian elders. This is going to be the conversation and the, the discussion tonight. And here's what I want to say. The debate and the discussion was not about a snake's gestation period or the fate of a dead chick, or the repair of a broken millstone, what was at stake was the relevance of Torah in a modernized Greek-Roman culture. Is Judaism relevant? Is Yiddishkeit applicable? Is God real in a society that champions philosophy and the mind and culture and art and physical prowess, is Judaism Torah relevant? By the way, this question could be asked today as well. Could be asked today. What is the relevance of Torah in 2021? Or is it perhaps old-fashioned with all our advances in art, science, philosophy, literature, medicine, technology? Is there a place for Torah and Judaism? Or, or perhaps... God forbid, is it a relic of the past? So as we explore and decode these riddles, we'll be seeking to understand not only their historical relevance, but also their timely, today, their modern relevance for you and I. I must say, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of interpretations of these riddles, of these debates in various commentaries. We've chosen a perspective that I believe will resonate with you tonight. Let's begin 
with the first point of debate. As you recall, before the rabbi boarded this ship to Athens, the emperor of Rome, likely Hadrian, the emperor of Rome stops him and says, Rabbi, how long is the gestation period of a snake? The rabbi said seven years. The Caesar says, that's not what I heard from the, from the Athenians. I heard it's three years. So the question is, a few, a few questions on this. That's the first topic we're going to, going to explore. So a few questions. Number one, why is this even a topic of discussion? Who cares, right? That's the obvious question. Like, how did this become a question? Gestation period of a snake? Who cares? Number one. Number two, why does the rabbi say seven years? Why do the philosophers say three years? Why seven? Why three? Number, th that's the second question. Third question. Why is each position, why is each party so staunch in their position? And why is the rabbi so determined to prove his point that he agrees to go to Athens to take on the elders to, to, of Athens to, to prove his point? What's, what, what's the, like, imagine, imagine the, the emperor says, uh, yeah, how, how long gestation period of a snake? Seven years. We think three years. You know what I would say? Lazim gain. Three years. Done. Three years. Good. I have, I'm going to the bagel shop. I got I to gotta run. Like, what's going on now? Why, why is this? No, seven years. I'm telling you it's seven years. And to prove it, I'm going to debate the 60 elders. of The whole thing doesn't make sense. Why are we talking about a snake? Why seven years? Why three years? Why, is the, why does the rabbi even care what's going on? But I already told you that it's not about snakes. It's not about, it's not about what it seems. It's a riddle. So to understand this, we need to understand what's a snake, what, should this, what, what is gestation? And what is the gestation period of a snake? In other words, on, 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 on the deeper level. I'm going to share with you an insight tonight that comes from the Vilna Gon, the great Gon, the great genius of Vilna, one of the great Talmudic scholars of the last several centuries. The Vilna Gon gives an explanation that will rock your world and possibly change your life. He says, you know what a snake is? <laughs> you know, somebody unmute and tell me what comes to mind when you think of a snake? What comes to mind? Anything. What comes to mind when you think of a snake? Symbolism. Original sin. Original sin. What else? Deceit. Deceit. Deception. The Vilna Gon says, you know what a snake means? You know what a snake refers to? Ready for this? You're still buckled, right? Don't take off your seatbelts at all tonight. Mashiach, the Messiah. Mashiach, snake. Ho! Shots fired! Whoa! Throwing shade on Mashiach! One second. Slow it down. Slow it down. He cites a verse. A verse. I'm not averse to this verse. Let, let me show it to you. Here we go. This is going to be from Isaiah. Y'all heard of Isaiah, right? Isaiah 14.29. I'm going to read this text. The prophet says, Isaiah says, Rejoice not, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you has been broken. From the root of a snake shall emanate a viper, and his deeds will be like those of a fiery serpent. Wow. What's going on here? Let me explain. Very simply. When the Jewish people went into the land of Canaan to conquer it, and turn it into the land of Israel. 
one of the nations that proved to be a thorn at the side of the Jewish people was the Philistines, the Pelishtim, the Philistines. Famously, the Philistines were battling and warring and fighting against the Jews from day one until a very epic episode happened. Who was the one that finally ended the Philistine antagonism? I'll give you a hint. The representative of the Philistines at that time, when it ended, was a giant named Goliath. Okay? Goliath. So who ended the Philistine threat? David. David David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. Giant. David slingshots his way, catapults his way into history by felling the giant. And the Jews are safe. But fast forward a few hundred years and wouldn't you know it, slowly, slowly the Philistines came back. The Jewish kingdom was on, a, was on the decline. There was some corruption and not such good things that were happening. It was in the time of King Achos. Either way, the Philistines come back. And the Philistines attack very severely, which brings us to the text. Prophet Isaiah says, Rejoice not all you Philistines. You guys are patting yourselves on the back. We finally did it. We're finally beating back the Jewish people. Don't rejoice that the rod that struck you has been broken. The rod that struck you, the Jewish people, has been broken. That's what you believe. Don't rejoice, Philistines, that you believe that the Jews that have struck you historically has now been broken. You've broken them. Why not? Because even though you're experiencing now a temporary victory, you should know that ultimately you will experience the downfall. When? From the root of a snake shall emanate a viper. From the dynasty of King David shall emanate the Mashiach, the Messiah, and his deeds will be like those of a fiery serpent. And that will, of course, in this context, end the antagonism to the people of Israel. This is the, this is the, the, the prophecy of Isaiah. He's referring to a future pushing back against the Philistines, and this is a reference to Mashiach. From the root of a snake shall emanate a viper. That is a messianic reference. Here we go. The Vilnagon says the following. He says, oh, oh, by, in case you're wondering about the connection, I know we have numerology fans here. Check this out. Mashiach and Nachash, Nachash means snake. They both equal 358. No, you can't make that up. Yes, there is a connection there. Nachash and Mashiach, and the facts and figures are right there. If you want to look at 58, 340, 30, 10, 8. Yeah, 358 on both sides. Just, just blowing your minds a little bit tonight. No big deal, right? But let's get back to continuing to blow your minds. All right? Let's keep on going here. Nachash Mashiach. Pull that one out of your hat at a, uh, at a party and try, try to see the reaction of your closest friends. Back to our story. The Vilnagon says, I warned you guys about the content tonight. I'm t- I, I don't say it and tell you. This is fire in a good way. The Vilnagon says that the discussion is the Caesar, the emperor of Rome, is asking, asking the rabbi, when is Mashiach going to come? The gestation period of a snake, right? Gestation means how long does it take until it finally delivers? 
What is the gestation period of the snake? What is the gestation period of Mashiach? When is your, according to your Jewish belief, when is your Messiah going to come? Are you with me on the question? Yes? Before we go further. The question is, you believe in a Redeemer, you believe in a restoration, remember the historical context. Several decades after the destruction, this is the Roman emperor now that's ruling over the land of Israel. The Jews are exiled. When do you believe you're going to get back? And the rabbi says, seven years. And the question, okay, so seven years, what does that mean? And what the Roman emperor says, three years, he believes Mashiach is coming sooner? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> no, the Athenians believe Mashiach is coming way sooner. Rabbi, come on, are you not a believer? What? No, that's not, let, let's clarify what the debate is. What are the seven years? What are the three years? Here we go. There's a Talmudic passage that explains. And let me pull up this passage. The Talmud says, text two, this is from Sanhedrin. Mashiach, the son of David, will come at the conclusion of a seven-year cycle. Seven-year cycle. Hello, black and white right here. What does that mean, seven-year cycle? The first year of the cycle will see the fulfillment of the verse, I will cause it to rain upon one city and cause it not to rain upon another city. The rain begins to dwindle. In the second year, the arrows of famine will be sent forth. In the third year, there will be a great famine in the course of which men, women, and children, pious people, and saints will perish and the Torah will be forgotten by its students. In the fourth year, Things stabilize. There will be partial sufficiency. In the fifth year, there will be abundance. People will eat, drink, and rejoice, and the Torah will return, to its, will return to its disciples. In the sixth year, there will be reports that Mashiach is coming. In the seventh year, there will be the wars that precede and herald the, the redemption. In the aftermath of the seven year, Mashiach, the son of David, will come. This is a statement from Sanhedrin 97a. By the way, not that much less enigmatic than the st stuff that we're talking about, but I want to just break this down very simply. The Talmud here discusses a seven-year cycle that's comprised of two three-year segments and a break in the middle. The first three-year um, cycle is a first three-year segment is a downturn. Things begin to disintegrate. Things begin to go downhill. Then it stabilizes, and then the three the next three years it goes up and it culminates in redemption. The rabbi says to the emperor of Rome. You, Mr. Roman Emperor, Mr. Cool Guy who wears probably a toga or something else, yeah? Roman Emperor dude, yeah? With your fancy robes and your Olympics. Good, good, very good. I hope that's working out for you. And he enjoys a Greek salad also, we explained. So you, Mr. Roman Emperor, you're asking when Mashiach is going to come. I'm telling you this. Things may look like they're going down, but we believe in seven-year cycles. Are you with me? Stay with me, guys. Don't lose me now. Things go in seven-year cycles, which means there are downturns. But hold on, keep on staying with it because ultimately what happens? It goes back up. Now, does it mean seven years exactly? Literally, it's been longer than seven years in case anyone's keeping count since the temple was destroyed. Closer to 2000, give or take. Nonetheless, seven is now symbolic of a down and up. It goes down, it goes up. Don't think about Joseph's seven years of this. That's a different seven years. Don't mishzachness. Don't, don't mix seven years. This is a seven-year cycle that we, uh, symbolizes Mashiach, which consists of a downturn and an upturn. So things look bad, but hold on. Ultimately, they'll get better. That's the Jewish belief. Optimistic belief. A Jewish, a Jewish optimist says it can always get worse. That was a joke. That's a, that's a pessimist. The true pessimist says it can always get worse. Anyway, back to our story. The rabbi says seven years. It's bad. It looks like you guys won. We don't have a temple. We believe it's going to get better. The emperor says that's not what they say in Athens. 
In Athens, they don't talk about seven years. They talk about three-year trends. You know what that means? The same two segments of three years, but you slice it in the middle and you disconnect it. And you know what that means? The Greeks say you got to go by the trends. You don't hold on for the rebound. You don't wait till bell bottoms come back in, in style. You get rid of it when it's out of style. When something goes down, you end it. Three years, you're done. And when something goes up, it's amazing. You hold it up, you put it on a pedestal. So what's trendy is in, what's not trendy is out, and that's it. And guess who's not trendy? Jews are not trendy. Jews are, are downtrodden. Jews are not at their, at their, at their peak. So y'all are out. Y'all are not cool anymore. You don't have a temple. You don't have Jerusalem. You don't have your own sovereignty. You don't have, your own, you don't have your, the whole thing. So you're out. You had your time. Three years down. You're done. Finished. We believe in three. We don't have a seven-year program. Three-year programs. You're out. What's in? Philosophy. Athens. Greece, the musical, or the philosophy. That's what's in. Yeah? It's not, not your seven-year cycle of rebounding. The rabbi says, nope. The rabbi digs in. It's not about snakes. How long is a snake pregnant was not the question. The question is, does Judaism have a future? Are you with me on this? I hope you're with me on this. Does Judaism have a future or is it done? The Roman emperor said, you had your time. The Jewish experiment is over. It's finished. Finito. Done. You're down. Three years. You're done. And the rabbi says seven years. You have to hold on through the crash because it gets better. This is not investing investment advice. Please consult your financial advisor. I'm just saying that if you can hold on through the crash, it always goes back up. Not always. Again, don't consider. Yeah, but with, with Judaism, this is what we believe. And if you strip it from that context, we can apply it to our own lives. Is there purpose in suffering? Is there light at the end of the tunnel? You know, we, we go through challenge in life. And if you take the three-year philosoph philosophical approach, the, the perspective is... It's bad. It's terrible. That's it. We're, I'm done. God forbid. I'm done. Suffering means the end. In the Jewish conception, God runs the world. We believe in a good God, which means that even at the depths of pain and suffering, we believe that something is good. This is true historically, Jewishly. You know what they sang? You know what the Jews sang on the way to the ch gas chambers? I believe with perfect faith in the coming of Mashiach. At the lowest depths, at the, at, the, at the point of greatest suffering, Jews were optimistic of a better future. On a personal level, this debate reminds us, the Jewish perspective is that suffering, we don't ask for suffering, we don't celebrate suffering, but we, we, we believe that every down leads to a greater up. That every, in the language of Judaism, every yirida, every descent leads to an aliyah, leads to an ascent that's greater than where you started. Because this too is God's will. Judaism that's not predicated on human philosophy and human reason, like the Athenians. 
Judaism that's predicated on a staunch faith in something beyond rationale believes that even when it looks impossible, there's hope. And there's something better coming down the line. We don't desire, we don't enjoy suffering, God forbid, but our faith in one God compels us to conclude that this too is from God. And for whatever reason, I am meant to experience this on my journey through life. And this can provide measures of solace in our suffering. That's the debate. And that kickstarts, that's the debate between the Roman emperor and the rabbi. And the rabbi realizes that what's under attack is not just the snake's gestation period, but the viability of Judaism and the perspective of monotheism and God in this world. And the rabbi says, I need to meet these Athenian philosophers. And so the debate is on. Rabbi Yeshua accepts Caesar's challenge and heads out to Athens. Before they lock wits, Rabbi Yeshua sets the ground rules. If they win, they can do whatever they want to him, which means he will concede to their way of thinking. If you win, then you convince me that you guys are right. Philosophy, Greek philosophy is, is the way it is, 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 is what's hot, and Judaism is out. I'll concede if you win. But if I win, you must eat bread with me on my ship. What does that mean? Bread is a euphemism for Torah. As some of you, as you may know, bread is a euphemism, water also, but bread is a euphemism for Torah. That means that if I win, he says, you agree to study Torah with me. In my, on my turf. Imagine the greatest Greek scholar studying Torah. Oh, baby, the chidushim that would fly. Are you kidding me? All right, so this is it. He can pull over the, the Athenian scholars into Talmudic debate. Woo! That would be amazing. They, they agree that if he wins, they're going to study Torah and discover the Jewish approach to navigating life. And so they pose the first riddle. And the first riddle, as you, as you re may recall, you know what, let's put it up on the screen so you don't have to remember. Okay, here we go. Let's pull it up on the screen. The sages said to Rabbi Yeshua, if a man seeks the hand of a woman in marriage and consent is not given, would he then seek a woman of higher social status? Doesn't make sense. If he got rejected down here, why would he attempt up there? Rabbi Yeshua took a peg and attempted to insert it into the lower part of a stone wall and it would not enter because there was no gap there. He then struck the peg higher up in the wall and it entered. There must have been a gap there. Similarly, with regard to the man, he said, it may be that the woman of higher standing is his destined mate. Simply, we're talking about Shaduchim. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a find, catch me a catch. We're talking simply about marriage. Love and marriage, marry up, marry down. And the rabbi takes a peg and sticks it in a wall. And, and, and this is supposed to sound meaningful or deep to us. A peg's not a peg, a wall's not a wall. Marriage is not marriage. We're not, in this context, we're talking about something much deeper over here. What the debate is referring to. What the riddle is referring to are two things that one can strive to achieve. One is lower and the other one is higher. And the Athenians are saying the following. If you can't achieve the lower goal, would you try to achieve, could you reasonably achieve the higher goal? In other words, if the one that's more in reach, again, forget about marriage, two goals, 
If you can't reach the lower one, you think you can reach the higher one. So why waste your time? Why waste your time pursuing something greater when you can't even achieve something less great? And Rabbi Shua maintains that you can. Even if you weren't successful down here, you might be more successful up there. And he demonstrates with the peg that that can work. What does that mean? What does this mean? Let me share with you an insight. Pull up another text. Here we go. Text number four. Rabbi Chanoich Zundel of Bialystok says the following. The meaning of the riddle. If one labors and toils to attain material success but fails, though the material is right before his eyes, why would he toil to attain something even greater? If somebody can't main, um, experience material success, can they reasonably be, expect to achieve higher success, spiritual success? Once again, this is a dig against the Jewish people, and I hope you're paying attention. I know you are, but I hope you're healthy, you're healthy and cup with me. The Athenians are saying, look at you guys. Where's your land? Where's your city? Where's your Jerusalem? Where's your temple? Where's your gold? Where's your success? Where's your material success? What happened? You're not successful. And you come here to Athens, to our Academy of Scholarship, and you think you're going to school us in philosophy and in spirituality? You can't even figure out how to keep your cities built. And you're telling, and, and you're not even achieving material success. And you think you're going to teach us spiritual success? You think you're going to school us spiritually? Let me check in for a second. Does this make sense, what they're saying? Yes. The Athenians are saying to the rabbi, Rabbi, Judaism, Jewish life is in shambles. Physically, materially, practically, it's in shambles. Quality of life is in shambles. And you think, you'll have, you think that we expect to hear something of value from you? You're going to guide us spiritually in life. You're going to show us the way to truth and, and, uh, and, and give us a divine perspective. If the material you can't even sort out, the spiritual you're going to get. If the woman of lower stature is rejecting you, you think the woman of higher stature is going to accept you? How's that possible? You failed materially. How are you going to succeed spiritually? And once again, the Athenians were chiding the Jews. We figured out how to maintain our standing, our material prosperity, even amidst Roman rule. Classically, Rome respected Athens, respected the Greek civilization, kept their culture around, didn't destroy their, their, their special places. We figured out how to, how to maintain our success. You guys didn't. Your city is destroyed. Your temple is destroyed. And you're, and you're going to tell us how to, how to what, what's smart? Are you kidding me? To which Rabbi Yeshua dramatically replies, not so fast. The two are not at all connected. Just because someone doesn't enjoy material success does not mean that their spiritual success is out of reach. For perhaps their destiny lies in the spiritual and not in the material. And what Rabbi Yeshua is saying is that our people has a strong spiritual connection 
notwithstanding perhaps sometimes the material challenges. Just look at the peg. Even though it can't fit into the lower part of the wall, it can fit higher. Why? Because that's where it's meant to be. Sometimes, let me say this maybe as clear as I can. Somebody could look at the Jew and say, ha, huh, so you guys claim to be a light into the nations. Interesting, interesting. Okay, okay. Um, and how many are you? <laughs> how popular are you guys? What percentage of the world are you? How strong are you? And, and you think you're going to teach us what to do? A light into the nations? Are you kidding me? Are you out of your mind? That's what, that's what the Athenians said. And the rabbi said, Makesha, what's the connection between one and the other? Could be that one is not destined to have success materially. Could be we're destined to be a small nation, a wandering nation, whatever it is. But does that, not mean, but does, does that mean that there's no spiritual value or guidance or wisdom in Torah and Judaism to share with others? Of course not. There's no connection between the two. If we take this a step further and personalize it, because I told you, it's not just contemporary 1900 years ago to what was going on in the culture then. It's for us today. In the realm of inclusion, it's easy to look at somebody and judge them by what they can't do. And say, oh, they can't do that, and that becomes the totality of who they are. Can't do that. It takes more courage, more discerning, more wisdom to be able to look at a human being, not by what they can't do, but what they can do. Not by what they're unable for whatever reason to do right now, but, by, but at what they can do, what they can contribute. Every single one of us, every single person on this earth, and every one of us here tonight, has things that they can do and things that they cannot do. And everyone here knows, I don't need to tell you this, you know that you don't like being defined by what you can't do. If somebody would define the totality of who you are by what you can't do, that would be highly offensive. What, I am only what I can't do? What about all that I can do? The Athenians were saying, you look at what someone can't do, and then you mock them, disregard them, chide them, and reject them. And if you think I'm applying this wildly, open up the history books and look for yourself at to what the great philosophical, the great philosopher Greeks did to people with disabilities. You look in history and see what they did. Completely disregarded. Completely just left to die and killed. And if you think these two things are a stretch, it all comes back to core philosophy. It all comes back to core beliefs. How do you look at a human being? By what they can't do? or by what they can do. 
So the philosophers say to the rabbi, Rabbi, look what you can't do. You can't even be successful materially, whatever they had in mind materially, right? You can't be successful on this level. You think you're, you, you expect us to believe that you're successful elsewhere? Come on. Do garnish. You're nothing. Judging by judging a person or a people by their challenges. And the rabbi says, it's not how it works in life. Separate conversations. There are things I can't do and things I can do because I am a child of God. Because unlike your philosophy that you created with your wise brains, I believe in God who created me in his image. And as such, I have a soul that has secret powers and sometimes not so secret powers that has superpowers that you can't fathom. Yes, I have my liabilities. There are things I cannot do. Everyone has things they can't do. Every person on this earth can't do something. But there's a lot that I can't do. And just because I can't do this doesn't mean I can't do that. Are you with me on this? Yes? Checking in, guys. Yes? And sometimes the strongest of powers and abilities lies in the most unlikely of places. So I'll share a story with you. This goes back to the 1970s. There was a group of injured Israeli war veterans that were visiting North America. And some members of the group decided to take the group out to the itinerary of visit to Brooklyn, to Kranites, to visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And they had a special meeting in the synagogue, the Rebbe, the leader of the Chabad Lubavitch movement, and these, I'm trying to think back to the pictures, there's pictures and audio of this, uh, of this, of this meeting, must have been maybe 100 people in the room. Wheelchairs and crutches and people that had lost limbs, injured. And in the context of the conversation, the Rebbe said the following. I propose a change. I think the Rebbe joked before he said that. In Jewish tradition of offering advice when unprompted, right? <laughs> when did that ever hold back a Jew from offering advice? He said, in the tradition of offering unprompted advice, I'll share this. I believe your name, the name of your group, should be changed from Nechei Yisrael, which means the disabled of Israel, to Mitsuyanim Bi Yisrael, which means the... What's a good translation? Mitsuyanim. It means... Um, excellent. Excellent. Um, uh, there's a better word, though, in this context. Excellent. Um, skilled. Basically, the Rebbe said, why are you being labeled by what you can't do? Why not be... The fact, if, if you're missing something, it means that you compensated with greater ability in some other place. So why focus on the lack of ability when you can focus on the exceptional, exceptional, exceptional of Israel? Why focus on the disability and not the exceptionalism? So the Rebbe said, change the name. I don't think they did. 
But this is not special needs. That refers to the need as being special. This is special ability. The Rebbe had a different perspective. It's the Jewish perspective. It's Rabbi Yeshua's perspective. The Athenian said, you can't. I'm not, I'm not looking at you. Look at you. can't even do that. Forget about it. You're out. And the rabbi said, I may not be able to do that, but look what I can do. Let's can, let me check in. Let me check in. Make sense so far? Yes? Okay. Um, let's continue. This leads into the next debate that we're going to focus on, which is the chick dying in its shell. Do you remember that one? The chick dies in its shell. Where does the spirit depart? Let me pull up the screen and let's remind ourselves of this debate. Here we go. A chick that dies while still in its shell. From where does its spirit depart, they asked. From where the spirit originally came. From there it departs. Oh, you gavald. What are we talking about here? Right? Seems a little cray-cray. Like, what's, what is this? A, a chick and the egg and the shell and where does the spirit depart from? Like, what, what a soul needs an exit? Like, a, like an exit door to leave? And the rabbi says from where it went in, that's where it goes out. It goes in somehow, a little microscopic hole. What are, what are we even talking about here? So here's what you need to know. This is based on the interpretation of the Maral of Prague. The Maral says that this too was a debate about the nature of the soul and the afterlife, especially as it pertains to children. In Greek philosophy, especially in the writings of Aristotle, we find references, many references to afterlife and immortality. But Aristotle's view differs significantly from the Jewish view. So let me share with you the following text. Text 5a. This is Aristotle. Metaphysics. 7. The adventure continues. Aristotle writes the following, but we must examine whether any form also survives after a person's death. For in some cases this may be so. For example, the soul may be of this sort, but not all the soul, but the reason. That means the rationale. The intelligence. For doubtless, it is impossible that all souls should survive. Aristotle is questioning, is there, does, does some part of consciousness or the human being survive after death? He says, yes. Some of the soul, not the whole soul. Which part of the soul? The reason of the soul. The reason of the soul. The knowledge. Specifically, as those that understand Aristotle explains, specifically he means kind of more abstract knowledge. The more abstract, if you know an apple and an apple dies too, then the knowledge is about death also, so that doesn't survive. But it's the things, it's the higher truths, it's the philosophical truths that a person knows, the, the eternal truths, so to speak, that live on with the person. That, that knowledge, that reason, that awareness is what lives on after death. That's the, that's the Aristotelian philosophy of what afterlife is. In other words, and I'm sure you're shocked, the philosopher says that the more philosopher you are, the more eternal you are. Shocking, right? I know. I know. Hold on to your seats. The philosopher was championing philosophy and said, philosophy is the way to go. But you know what that means? 
What about a child? What about a child that never had a chance to philosophize, to study abstract ideas? God forbid if the child passes away at a young age, does that child's soul have any immortality, have any afterlife? According to Aristotle, the answer is no. No philosophy, no ticket to immortality. If you haven't acquired knowledge of universal and abstract principles, like a child hasn't, then there's no immortality. This is fundamentally rejected by Judaism. Judaism, which has a different conception of the soul altogether. Let's take a look at the Maharal's words in text number six. The meaning of the Athenian's argument. It is your view that the human soul emanates from God and returns to him upon a person's death. Indubitably, this can only be true, says the Greek philosophers. If a person has transcended his crass materialistic nature, that is, after he has grown and matured. During one's childhood years, however, the petty materialism in which one is exclusively involved prevents him from connecting with the divine. This is the meaning of the question regarding the chick that dies in its shell. The Athenians referred thus to one who dies while still unrefined and spiritually unrealized. Such a person is akin to a chick that has not yet been born. It is as if he has never truly existed upon this person's demise. The materialism in which he was immersed prevents his soul from returning to its maker. For in their estimation, only the intellect is immortal, and thus there can be no soul continuity for children who have never attained this level. The chick in the shell that's stuck in the shell is a euphemism, is symbolic in their estimation, not the Jewish estimation, in their estimation of the reality that happens when a child or someone else who never had the opportunity or the occasion to study philosophy never transcended the world of things into the world of ideas, that that person doesn't have the ability to connect with immortality. A chick that dies in the shell, where will the soul go? There is no soul that goes anywhere. There is no immortality. That was the debate position of the Athenians, to which the rabbi responded, text 6b, from where the spirit originally came, from there it departs, Rabbi Yeshua responded. Meaning, just as the spirit enters the corporeal body, so too it departs it. Even while in the body, the spirit is an independent entity. The soul is not a materialistic thing that needs to gain some sort of, some sort of key to get out. The soul emanates from an altogether different realm. Even as it's here, it's not really here. I hope you understand what this answer is. The soul is immortal. Of course, it doesn't say trapped in a shell. According to the Greek philosophers, the soul has to earn its way up. According to Judaism, the soul has to earn. Are you kidding me? Do you know where the soul came from? The soul is only here temporarily. The soul does not need to get points like Super Mario Brothers. Ba -da -ba -ba -da -bam -bam. It doesn't need to get coins and secret magic things to get powers to then escape. Are you kidding me? You know who the soul is or what the soul is. The soul is a piece of God. And a piece of God doesn't need an upgrade. It is already 
good to go. And here we have, once again, a debate that's not only relevant then, philosophically, Jewishly, monotheistically, spiritually, a debate that rages today in our society. What is the value, once again, of the human being? Is it achievement? Is it accomplishment? You meet someone for the first time. The first question is, what do you do? That makes me valuable what I do. What if I do nothing? Am I valuable in your eyes or not? What do you do implies that value lies in what we do versus who we be, i.e. who we are. In Judaism, value is not a product of what we do, but it's who we are. Created in the image of God is what the Torah tells us about the value of a human being. The proper response to the proper I don't know, I'm not sure how to phrase this. When you meet someone, the proper conversation ideally should be, oh, it's nice to meet a piece of God. And it's nice to meet you as well. That's the proper greeting. I acknowledge you as a divine being, a divine reality encased in a corporeal, in a physical, materialistic body. But I know who you are. You are a piece of God. You don't need to earn your way up. You don't need to earn your way out. You don't need to gain favor, curry favor in my eyes. It's an honor to meet a piece of God. If we looked at others that way, if we looked at ourselves that way, do you think the world would be a better place? I'm going to raise my hand and say I believe that. I believe that. We live in a world where you're guilty until proven innocent. So who are you? What do you do? Do I value you? Should I listen to you? Tell me what you do, who you are, what you believe in, and I'll tell you if I think that you're worth having a conversation with. That's how we, that's how we treat each other. In the world of philosophy, unless you have big ideas, you're out of the conversation. In the world of Judaism, you are a child of God and a piece of God. says in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, Eizehu Chacham, who is wise? And the answer is, Halomed Mikal Adam, one who learns from everybody. One who learns from everybody. This Nudnik, this guy who's hacking a Chinik, I'm going to learn from this guy. This guy? Are you kidding me? I'm trying to get out of this conversation. Learn. Do you have the humility? Do I have the humility? Do we have the humility? to really listen to what someone else has to say. In a world of do, what do you do? Prove to me your value. We don't have time to listen. In a world of be, in a world in which we recognize that we are a piece of God, I am a piece of God, you're a piece of God, everyone has their gifts. It's kind of related to what we said before about the peg and the wall and the marriage. Yeah. Okay, but again, it's about the nature of the human being, the nature of the soul. So does every human being have value or is it only earned by a select few? This was the subject of a debate. All right. Turns out, well, I'm not going to get to the millstone. We don't have time. 
I didn't get to another nine of them either. We also don't have time. So we did the original debate between the emperor and the rabbi, that was one, and two of the Athenian debates. Okay. Turns out that these seemingly silly spars, silly conversations, ah, what about a chicken and egg, and what about uh, gestation period of a snake, and what about the, the marriage uh, rejection? Turns out that these silly conversations contain some of the deepest Jewish wisdom about our belief in God, in soul, in what constitutes reality. Because we Jews believe in God, we believe that it's going to get better. We don't have to end it just because it's on a downturn. It's going to get better. We believe in God. Because we believe in God, we believe in the power that the soul has to achieve things even when it can't achieve other things. And because we believe in a divine soul, we believe that every human being has value. We're talking about message of equality and inclusion and positivity and optimism. These are unbelievable traits to carry through this journey called life. If you and I walk through life with strength and courage and optimism and, and spiritual connection and an appreciation of life and humanity and soul and spirit, this world would be a magnificent place. This world would be an incredible place. The alternative doesn't get better, gets worse, it's over. You don't have value, you have nothing important to say. If you're not a philosopher, get out of the room. That sounds, that sounds familiar, right? It sounds like, sounds like the world we live in. Very dismissive, very um, divisive, very foreboding, doom and gloom, it's all going to end. This is literally a description of the culture we live in. This is not a political statement, right? It's not, it's not a, a right-left-center thing. This is just the nature of what's in the air around us. Judaism has a different approach, predicated on faith. This was at the core of the debate between the Athenians and the rabbi. And you know what? The Athenians acknowledged in this riddle debate. They encoded their ideas in a riddle. He understood it and riddled back to them, and they submitted that he won. So what happened at the end of the story? Because I know you're waiting for the end of the story. What was, the, what was at stake? At stake was either he, he learns with them or they learn with him. So what happens? Now they're going to learn with him. Let's see what happens next. It will rock your world once again. So Rabbi Yeshua brought them to eat in his boat. And once they were all aboard, he ordered the captain to set sail. When the boat reached the place of the swallowing waters, you're probably wondering where that is. Let me explain. When they reached the place of the swallowing waters, they filled a small jug with its waters. When they arrived in Rome, remember he was going to bring them back to the emperor, Rabbi Yeshua presented the sages before Caesar. Caesar said to Rabbi Yeshua, whatever you desire, you may do with them. 
Rabbi Yeshua brought the swallowing waters and poured it into a barrel. Fill this barrel with water, Rabbi Yeshua instructed the Athenian sages, and then you are free to go. They tried to fill it by casting therein barrel after barrel of water, but the waters were absorbed by the swallowing waters. Thus they continued until the joints of their shoulders became dislocated, and they wore themselves out and went on their way. That is literally how the story ends in the Talmud. And once again, we're left wondering, what? <laughs> what just happened here? They're on a ship. They fill up a small jar, jug of swallowing waters. They stand before the emperor. They have an empty barrel. They first pour in the swallowing waters and then other waters. But no matter how much other water they pour in, the swallowing waters eliminate the other water. So here's the, here's the lesson. Let me just cut straight to the chase. We could, do, we could build this out longer, but in the interest of time, let me just give it to you. Water, as is in this week's Torah portion, Noah with the flood, water is symbolic of cleansing. Water, like a mikvah, which is a ritual ba cleansing bath, water is symbolic of cleansing. A kosher mikvah, as you may know, needs to contain natural living water, either water from a natural source or water from the rain. It cannot be collected by human hands or human tools and then dumped in the mikvah. If you put a bucket outside and the rain falls in the bucket and then you take the bucket and dump it into a hole in the ground that will be your mikvah, it doesn't count, doesn't work. If you collect the waters, it's invalidated. It has to come straight from the source. This represents the following. To purify a human being, not just from, you know, um, halachic impurities, but from conceptual impurities, from the, the challenges of life to become purified. It comes at the hand of the divine, not human. Not, not, it's not a product of human creation. It comes from, from God. The wisdom, the wisdom that we study is very important. Are we studying man-made, man-collected wisdom or divine wisdom? Man-collected wisdom, man-made wisdom, human-generated wisdom is nice and it's very smart and it's very clever, but it doesn't purify. Divine wisdom, Torah, purifies. Listen to this. When you have a mikvah, that's kosher because it has the natural water in it, and then you pour man-made waters into it, it stays kosher. As long as you have 40 saw, which is the amount of a kosher mikvah, as long as you have the kosher mikvah water, you can dump tap water into it, no problem, it's kosher. But if you start off with not kosher water, and then you pour the kosher water, and then the kosher water comes into it, it's invalidated. This is the swallowing waters. The rabbi said to the Athenians, when I teach you Torah now, are you going to take your Greek philosophy? Are you going to take your philosophy as your core and then try to layer Torah on top? In which case, you're not really learning Torah. Are you with me on this, what, I, what I'm saying? As long as you hold as your foundation, your Greek philosophy, your man-made philosophies, you're never truly going to embrace and be open to listening to the message of Torah, to that perspective. And thus, you're going to pollute the Torah's message with your existing swallowing waters. Swallowing waters means that it invalidates what you put into it. So when you have at your base 
your philosophies, no matter how much Torah I give you, it's going to be swallowed up, it's going to be not, it's going to be voided out because you will disregard it because of your entrenched prior beliefs. But if you can let go of your swallowing waters, if you can clean out your barrel, your mind, from preconceptions, predispositions, any biases and prejudices, if you can really be open to a Torah perspective, it'll change your mind, it, it, it will enlighten your mind, it'll rock your world, and it will cleanse your soul. If you're open to it. The rabbi won the debate, and he wanted to teach them Torah. And he said, I'll do it on one condition that you have the courage to let go or at least suspend your prior beliefs. If you can do that, we can have a conversation. If you can't let go, then it's going to be a waste of time. And this reminds us in our lives as we study Torah and we try to gain or we're in, the, we're in proximity of gaining a different view on reality. Let's be courageous enough to let go of those swallowing waters. Let's be courageous to let go of the status quo and what we believe we believe in. And our natural inhibition to change. Our natural resistance to change. Let's let go of that and embrace a Jewish perspective. Because ultimately, it's good for us. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Curious Tales, of the, Curious Tales of the Talmud. I hope, I hope, I don't know how it worked out for you, but I'm hoping that you learned something tonight. I'm hoping that you saw that the Talmud happens to be a brilliant work, not only the stuff that makes sense on the surface, the halachic conversations and battles, but even the story that, that I'm going to say nine out of ten times a person learns it is like, Oh, that seems weird. Let's move on to the next page where probably something of sense will come about. These contain, these not seemingly nonsensical stories contain the deepest insight, insights. And so I hope you've gained insight into this core debate between secular philosophy and Judaism. A debate that raged 1900 years ago. And honestly, still going on. Hasn't stopped. It's our choice. Like anything in life, it's our choice. What life are we living in? The life in which despair and doom and gloom rules the day because we don't believe in, in, in a better future? We don't believe in a God that's going to bring a better future? A world in which we disregard others based on ability? A world in which we chalk people's value up to what they've done and accomplished? Or a world that believes in or, or, or do we want to live in a world in which we believe optimistically in a better future for us all, which we respect each other, value the other, and recognize that we're all a piece of God? L'chaim, to life. Next week, in our second session, it's called the Great Oven Debate. Great oven debate. Oh, I wish I was prepared for this. Wolf, is Wolf a brand of like high-end, is that a high-end brand? Wolf, did I make that up? Wolf, 
What's another high-end? Whatever, if the match. That's not what the great oven debate is at all. That's not, it's not a brand debate. I mean, look, Kenmore or what? Anyway, no, it's not, that's not what the debate is. It's the clash between idealism and pragmat, pragma, pragmatism. Next week, we're going to explore the unbelievable tale of what went down in the Talmudic Academy when the great Rabbi Eliezer disagreed with his colleagues on a matter of Jewish law surrounding an oven. And what happens will shock you. A carob tree walks, a stream goes backwards, the walls of the academy shake, and a heavenly voice rings out from above. Join me next week to discover what in the world went down in this episode and what it means for us today. In Lesson 2 of Curious Tales of the Talmud 2, don't miss it. And please invite a friend to join because they'll love it. Thank you very much for joining. I have maybe three minutes before I have to run. So open up your mics. And, and I, I want to just clarify something. I didn't mention it before we started. There's so much information that my, my plan with this is a little bit more lecture style and even throughout the class. Hopefully next week we can have a little bit more conversation, but today I knew that to get through this, I would have to keep on going. But now let's do three minutes of conversation, but then I do have to run. Richard, you got the mic. Yes, so next week, is if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Is that the deal next week? Yes, yes, thank you. I'm done. Yes, no, that's good, that's good. Questions or comments or statements or, uh, yes. Rabbi. Yes. The, the rabbi was called to Athens uh, to debate, and the um, 60 elders are waiting there by him, so why does he have to sneak in a secret entrance? The, 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 um, the elders, I don't think, knew about it. It was the Roman emperor that said, go to Athens and debate the, uh, the Athenians. So he had to sneak in. He proved his prowess by getting in. They already realized, all right, here's the guy. If you get in, right, if you can make it through the, uh, the buzzsaw and the lasers, if you can somehow sneak in, all right, we can have a schmooze. We can have a conversation. That's kind of what's going on in this, uh, in this, uh, this situation. Yeah, it's part of the test. Can you get in? And by the way, I, we skipped. So do yourself a favor. Just Google Bechorot 8B. Literally, B-E-C-H-O-R-O-T, Bechorot 8B. A website called Safaria will pop up and read it. Read it. it it's it's mind-blowing. <laughs> we, we covered a piece of it tonight. I, I don't even know how, I can't even, I mean, what do we say about Torah? Other than, we're fortunate, we're lucky to have this. It's a privilege that we have this vast wisdom that we have access to. It's, it's unbelievable. It sure, beats, uh, it, 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 it sure beats TikTok. I mean, I'm just saying. I'm just saying, this is like, this is what we've been doing for thousands of years. Right? Pleasure, pleasure. Jay, great to see you. All right, let's mention everybody because I didn't do it at the top. Ray and Adina Malka and Samuel and Mike and Rose and Jerry and, and Fran and Dror hopefully as well and Stephen and Rhoda. I saw Rhoda before and Mom and Jay and Donna and Fred and Donna and Richard and Susan and Jules and Steve and Sarah and Vlad and Catherine and Ekaterina and Mom, final word. I have a question. Yes. Unless I misremember... The Rabbi Yehoshua asked for a boat with 60 rooms. Yes. So I presume that each 
each philosopher would have his room, but in each room were 60 beds. The, ta- the, Gemara, the Gemara discusses it. The Talmud discusses it. He faked them out because each one was waiting for the others to come in. Each one saw 60 beds and they thought all the, the elders are going to come into their room. And so they were waiting. Meanwhile, they closed the door and the ship took off. That way they, 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 um, they stopped the elders from escaping. That's the way the town, I'm sure there's more elaboration on it. But if you look up the story, that's what it says. Each one went into their room and they were waiting for the others to join because they saw that they had 60 beds. So they figured everyone's going to board together. And mitamol, the boat takes off. Why did it have to be done that way? It, uh, anyway, there's much more to explore. But that's the simple, the quick uh, analysis of the 60 beds in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in each room. You. Pleasure. Great to see you all. Lila Tov. Till next week. Oh, one, one quick thing. I know some of you are, are already bouncing out. But very quickly, take a look at the website. We just announced today an incredible event with Judge Rachel Fryer, known as Rookie Fryer, the first Orthodox woman to be appointed as a public official in the United States of America. She is a criminal court justice in New York City. She has an incredible story. There are documentaries and New York Times pieces about her. We're going to have her live on Zoom on the 19th, Tuesday, October 19th, You cannot miss this one. She is incredibly inspiring, an incredibly powerful individual, and you want to hear this story. She has taken on a lot of challenge and done incredible things. So set set your calendars, 8 p.m. October 19th, for Judge Rachi or or Rachel Fryer. Um, The event is called The Superwoman of Night Court. That's the title of the New York Times piece that ran about her um, a little while back. All right. Join us then. Join us for other classes. Just stay on Zoom. I'm kidding. It's different Zoom Zoom links, but I look forward to seeing you guys soon. Take care. Lila Tov. We'll see you guys soon. All right. Take care.